1 Kings chapter 17. This evening I'm going to speak to you on how to make a difference. And it goes along with our theme for this entire year. And I'll be several Sunday evenings taking texts from the Bible where we've seen people who made a difference and pointing out some of the things that I think we need to draw upon. So I hope you'll get it in your heart and your mind, though, to pray that the Lord will help us as a church to make a difference. I, we should pray for our Sunday school, that our Sunday school would make a difference. We don't want to be a run-of-the-mill, ordinary, usual, vanilla kind of Sunday school. We want to be a Sunday school that, that trains and, and prepares people for the ministry, their lives, and the service, their living, and all the responsibilities that life throws at them. We don't want our worship services just to be mediocre. We want them to be a kind of worship service that makes a difference. We want to make sure that we're in, as we do in Sunday school, and Sunday night and Wednesday night, we want to make sure that the Word of God is paramount and has priority in regard to sharing, teaching, preaching, and so forth. We want the messages to be helpful and useful, practical and relevant. And the Sunday evening and Wednesday night the same way. So what we want to do is make sure everything we do around here is geared toward making a difference. And this will be the first in a series of those, and they'll just go on as long as we need to for the rest of the year, making the point that we want to make a difference. We don't want to go as usual and go the same way we've gone in the past. We want to make a difference. I want you to make a difference with the people you work with, your neighbors, your family, um, people in this community. I want us to make a difference, and I believe we can, and I believe we should. I believe that's why we're here. In First Kings, we've been in Second Kings. This is First Kings chapter 17. And look, if you would, at the first seven verses. This is a, a, a story. This is, is a sort of preliminary statements of a story that you're aware of and some of the, the great miracles that Elijah performed. But I want you to see it. Chapter 17, verse 1. Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the inhabitants of Gilead, said unto Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel liveth, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years but according to my word. Now this is Elijah the prophet speaking to Ahab, the king of Israel. And he's telling the king that it shall not produce dew on the earth and it shall not rain, but according to his word. As a prophet, he's, as a prophet of God, he says, when I ask God, he'll send rain. If I don't ask God, he ain't going to send rain. And right now I'm asking him not to send rain. And so he leaves it with that. Verse 1. Verse 2, then he says, And the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, Get thee hence, and turn thee eastward, and hide thyself by the brook Cherith, that is, before Jordan. And it shall be that thou shalt drink of the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed thee there. So he went and did according unto the word of the Lord, for he went and dwelt by the brook Cherith, that is, before Jordan. The ravens brought him bread and flesh in the morning, and bread and flesh in the evening, and he drank of the brook. And it came to pass after a while that the brook dried up because there had been what? Who, who asked for there be no rain? The prophet did. So sometimes you get bit by the own snake that you create. So you be careful what you say, be careful for what you pray, and be careful that you don't get mad when it comes back to you, you know. You don't curse the brook because it didn't rain and you don't have anything to drink. Uh, understand that there's something more exciting here. If God puts you there and your brook is dried up and you got to have water to survive 
That means God's got to do something. And that's exactly what this story will set up for if we were to go through all of it, and we'll not, but, uh, or at least not tonight. But that's the basis, and that's sort of the foundation. If you were just to have a casual reading of chapter 16, which is the previous chapter to this one, what you would see is that it revealed in Israel there was a sad and bad day. Those people were really under a dark cloud. You can see it if you work back over just a few verses in chapter 16. For instance, look at chapter 16 and verse 28. This will tell you that so Amri slept with his fathers and was buried in Samaria. And Ahab, his son, reigned in his stead. That's verse 28. Look at verse 30. And Ahab, who is now king of Israel, the son of Amri, did evil in the sight of the Lord above all. That were before him. Verse 31. And it came to pass that as if he had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he took to wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. Look at verse number 33. Verse 33, and Ahab made a grove, and Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel that were before him. That's why it was such a bad day, because this is such a bad guy. Ahab is a bad king. And the fact of the matter is that uh, in this particular case, it almost sounds like it does in our day and age. I mean by that, it almost sounds like the day in which you and I live when the leadership of our country, of our land, has all but abandoned the God that created this world and gave us this great land in which we live. Oh, he didn't abandon it for nothing. He has now, as it were, replaced him with the false but very popular religion of Islam and how the true holy God of heaven must be provoked just like the God of heaven was in this context. You see, the sin was running rampant in the land of Israel, just like it's running rampant in our country, and just like it seems to be getting closer to home all the time. As I read the last few days where the gay and lesbian homosexual communities are trying to make, in fact, making an all-out effort to make Bloomington, Indiana, another San Francisco, or another Sodom and Gomorrah. As I stood out a few days ago, there were some men who worked down in Bloomington, Indiana, and were saying they're ashamed to say that they work there. One guy said, I'm ashamed to say I own a business there. An article in the paper quoted a man who said, look, I don't know what we're going to do. It's serious consideration. We're going to pull out of Bloomington, Indiana, because I think it's given over to homosexuals. That's a sad statement. That's a sad thing that somebody's just going to give up living in a community because all of a sudden the whole attitude of commercialism, the whole attitude of tourism, is pointed to say Bloomington, Indiana is a homosexual Mecca. It's the San Francisco by the bay down in southern Indiana. What a shameful, disgraceful kind of title. Who would want it? Who would want to say, hey, I'd like to join the, the, the Chamber of Commerce because I want to get in on this. Let me tell you something. It will cost those people who get on board with this because sin always takes you further than you want to go cost you more than you want to pay and keep you longer than you want to stay. I don't care what sin it is, whether it's a community, whether it's a church or an individual. This will cost Bloomington, Indiana long term. You mark it down. Because it's not a sin against people as much as it is against a sin against the holy God of heaven. The scriptures are clear. Homosexuality is an abomination to God Almighty. It's not just an abomination to good business economics. It's abomination to God Almighty. And they're going to have to answer for that to God. And a good way to do it is for the business to go down the tubes, as it were. 
So I'm saying to you, that's a disgrace. But it's getting worse in our own community. I believe I was telling Brother Renee uh, a few weeks back uh, the homosexual influences that are moving into Franklin College. A few weeks ago, they had the Matthew Shepard play that went on over here at Franklin College. Everybody knows about the Matthew Shepard play. That's the thing where that homosexual uh, boy was beat to death in, a, in a Wyoming down there. They made him a national hero of the lesbian homosexual group. I mean, this boy was uh, certainly wronged, and nobody de denies that. But what was just as important to me is nobody's breathed a word about the young, small kid who was homosexually abused down in Arkansas some months and years back now. And never a word in the national media was made because the two people who did it were outright homosexual, pedophiles kind of guy who belonged to NAPLA, that organization love boy relationship group. Nobody said a word about that. Why? Because right now it's just not popular to be against homosexuality. And anybody who stands up and says, this is wrong and this is wicked, this is ungodly, oh man, you're marked as being judgmental. You're marked as being, oh, anti-good and anti-kind. And let me tell you something. You have a choice to make. You can either be called anti-kind and be on the opposite side of the fence from where God is, or you can go along with the crowd and be popular and not be appreciated by God Almighty in heaven. Now, you have a choice. Who do I want to stamp me with approval? The society in which I live, which is so intoxicated with its own sin that it wouldn't know right from left. And in fact, Scripture mandates that someday it'll get to a point where they'll call right wrong and wrong right. We're close. We're close. But there's other things. And I say to you that as it was in Elijah's day, so it is in ours. The devil is delighted. God's people are looked upon with disdain and disapproval and dislike. And some of God's people are outright dismayed. That is, they've lost their courage, their, their uh, resolution to fight on, as it were, to get into battle and stay at it and to stay faithful to the Lord. But I would say to you, our mission hasn't changed. The captain of our army is our God. He has not changed our marching orders. They remain the same. The only thing that's changed is the world has simply gotten more wicked and more ungodly. I turn your attention from chapter 17 of 1 Kings, and we will come back later, but 1 Kings chapter 18, and call your attention to two verses of Scripture there. In chapter 18 of 1 Kings, there are two verses. Verse number 17, 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 17, And it came to pass when Ahab saw Elijah, this is when Ahab the king of Israel saw Elijah the prophet of God, that Ahab said to him, Art thou he that troubleth Israel? Doesn't that ring interesting? You Christians are causing us trouble. We don't like you. How come you Christians are always against what the rest of the community is for? Why do you always stand up against the beer permits? Why do you always fight the, the, the homosexual sin? Why are you always against gambling? Why are you always trying to undercut the things that we need to get monies to operate our country with and our, our state? Why are you against all this? Because there's sin taxes. There's a better way to have a living in the state of Indiana and the United States of America than to create sins and then tax them. That's not the way to run a country. That's not the way to run a home or a family or, or a state. And the fact is, we don't need that kind of thing. And for the reasoning of standing up against sin, which is what every Christian ought to do in his community because it'll make his community better to stand against sin, we then get blamed, as in this case, as did Elijah. He's considered to be the fellow who's causing trouble. You're the troubler. You cause in Israel all kinds of trouble. Verse 18, And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but thou and thy father's house. 
in that ye have forsaken the commandments of the Lord, and thou hast followed Balaam. Are Christians bad for America? That's a good question, and it ought to have an answer, and I believe that it does. I don't believe Christians are bad for America. But I can tell you something, if we're going to make a difference in our city, our county, our country, our world, I'll tell you right now, we've got to do a better job. We've got to do a better job. We, um, I think we have to be more convinced that there's a God in heaven who wants to do something about the way things are and the way people are than we have been convinced in the past. I think we have to have a deep-seated passion about the fact that Jesus Christ can make the difference in people's lives that can make the difference in their happiness, fulfillment, and joy. I'm convinced that something has to give. I'm also convinced that it is true that we've done a pretty good job of cursing the darkness. But we have done a sorry job of spreading the light. I think you need to stand against sin. Boy, if you know our Wednesday night service, we read the articles, that's part of it. That's what I'm trying to get you to do. I'm trying to get you to hate sin. I'm trying to get you to see from these articles that we read that this kind of thing is absolutely permeating and in some cases paralyzing our communities, hurting us. Sin hurts a community. It doesn't help it. It never has and it never will. And what we have to do is just to be constantly reminded of the fact that I need to do something about it. I don't need just to hear it, that it's wrong, that it's bad, that it's hurting, that it's destroying, that it's ruining families and homes and communities. I need to stand and say, okay, now, what in light of what I know do I need to do? I'd say this is the first thing to you, and this is the first step toward this business of how to make a difference. The first thing is this, you've got to be more different than you have been. You've got to be more different than you have been. How different have you been? When you go to work... How different are you from everybody else who's there? Is everybody else there saved? Is everybody else there Christian? Are everybody else there going to heaven? If they are, how do you fit with them? Are you a normal Christian? Are you an average Christian? Are you a committed Christian? Are you an outspoken Christian? Now, in context of this, I say to you, uh, it's important that you understand that there's a way to do the right thing, and there's a wrong way to do the right thing, and there's a right way to do the wrong thing. You have to be careful that you don't do the right thing in the wrong way. And see, some people do. For instance, you ought to be against sin. But you ought to be against sin in a right way. And I'll explain that maybe in a greater detail in a moment. Instead of us being the church in the world at large among the pagans, too many churches, I don't believe ours to a great degree, but to some degree surely, have permitted the world to walk right into our churches the world has altered our thinking, they have weakened our actions, and to some degree they've compromised our lifestyles. Now listen to me good. Until we're comfortable, until we're comfortable, until we are comfortable being different in a godless society, we will never make a difference. Until you're comfortable being different in a godless society, you'll never make a difference in a godless society. You have to get comfortable being different. And uh, I believe I am. I'm comfortable in my neighborhood with every one of my neighbors thinking I'm nuts. I'm comfortable. I'm comfortable with that the folks on the south side where a lesbian lives probably thinks I'm the nut of nuts. I I'm comfortable with that. That's okay. 
I'm comfortable with the folks on the other side where there's some problems and, and has been some criminal activity in his life. I'm comfortable knowing that this guy didn't care for me. Oh, I've tried to witness to him. I've shared the gospel. I've invited him to church. I've left tracks. I've been kind to him. My wife and I have done kind things to try to win them over. But the fact of it is that does not mean I compromise one iota of what's right telling him it's good. You know, it's good all to be wicked and drink and carouse and do all the things. I don't have to do that to make this guy come to faith in Christ. I'd be fighting the very cause for which I stand. What you do is you take a stand and say God's against that because it's bad for you. You need to come from where you are or to where God is and life can get a lot better over there. So you don't compromise the gospel and you don't compromise decency, honesty, and purity to get somebody to make some kind of flappy spiritual decision. We're not after fuzzy things. We're after reality here. And the fact of the matter is we're going to make a difference and the first thing that has to happen, I've got to get comfortable knowing I don't belong here. I am a pilgrim here. I'm not a citizen of this land. I have a home beyond the grave. I'm a person who's on my way home. I'm not there yet. And I'm not to live with these people. This is not the people I'm going to live forever with. I'm just tolerating them. I'm just here sharing the gospel with them. I'm just here saying to them, I'm on my way home and I'd love for you to go with me. But whether you go or not, I'm not going to compromise what I've been taught from God's Word. You want to come and go along? You're welcome. But you have to come along on God's terms. Repent of your sin. Turn from it. Abandon it. Leave it. And walk and live for Him. If you're willing to do that, then there's certainly there's something for you. And I am willing to share with you and help you and do everything I can for you to be all that you ought to be and could be for Christ. It is our failure to live out our faith in the marketplace that I believe has made us weak and ineffective. And that's despite, by the way. I mean, in spite of the abundance of Bible studies, the abundance of teaching books, the, uh, of, in spite of the tapes that we have, the television broadcasts we have, the television programming, the conferences that we can attend, the seminars that we've gone to, the Christian schools that we've had, everything from kindergarten to seminary, it begs this question. How can we have all this Christian stuff going on and yet have this sinful mess in our families and in our country? How do you figure? Well, let me tell you something. Being a Southerner, they used to say two things. Neither neither one of them are anchored in the South. One of them, there's a dead monkey on the line. You ever heard that? There's a dead monkey on the line. Or there's something rotten in Denmark. Either or, it simply states the case. You can't have all that going on. I mean, we have made so many translations of the Bible, it'll make you dizzy to talk about them. Did that make any difference? Has that made greater Christians? Are we more sold out for Christ now than we were 150 years ago? I don't think so. You see our problem? We've been absolutely intoxicated with more spiritual stuff. But forgive me. We ain't making much of a difference. And I'm telling you it's time that we either wake up or we sleep the sleep of death spiritually for our churches. And it's not a matter of comparison. I know for a fact, and you better get used to the facts, that churches that offer everything under the sun for everybody's want and wishes is going to grow like leaps and bounds. But churches that say this is the diet that we live by and this is the diet we die by are going to struggle. Oh, there's things we can do. There's things that we should have done. And as pastor, I'll take full responsibility for us not pulling the things along that we should have so we could do a better job. 
We can do better. Every age group in our church, every ministry within our church can do better, should do better, and ought to do better for the glory of God. But I'm here to tell you, until we get comfortable being different in a godless society, we're not going to make a difference. And it's a mental attitude. It's coming to grips with this. You see, until and unless we Christians change and are really willing to be different, the society of sinful people and their lifestyle is not likely to change itself toward us. You see, I think they're looking at us and see if we're real. See if we'll stand up in face of all their counter-arguments against why we do what we do and they're badgering us and they're disapproving of us and their statements of condemnation. But you see, when Christians change more to the Christ-likeness that we should be, the pagans are more likely to take note that we've been with Jesus Christ. And that's what it took in the early church. These disciples took note that those men had been with Christ. And they perceived that there was some kind of difference to which they couldn't explain. There's passages in this last week as I was reading for my devotions, I ran across them. They're in the book of John. You might look there quickly. There's a, a John chapter 3, for instance. Listen to this. John chapter 3 and verse 14 says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Of course, that precedes John 3.16, which we're so familiar with. I call your attention to what it says in the first part of verse 14, John 3. And as, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. When you go to John chapter 8 and verse 28, it said, Then said Jesus unto them, When ye have lifted up the Son of Man, then shall ye know that I am he... And that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father hath taught me, I speak these things. And he that sent me is with me. The Father hath not left me alone, for I do always those things that please him. Verse 30 of John 8 says, And he spake these words, and many believed on him. Then John chapter 12 says, And in I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. This he said, signifying what death he should die. One of the things that we need to do in practice is what these disciples and Moses himself practiced, and that is a sense of, even though this relates to the Lord Jesus Christ, primarily the reference to his crucifixion, there's practical application here that one of the things we need to do to make a difference where we are is we need to lift up more the Lord Jesus Christ, who he is, what he has done, and what he could do for people around us. You see, I don't get too excited when some celebrity walks to a microphone and, and, uh, and they give him some big... This is a Kleenex box. This is not a plaque or not a, an award. But some guy gets an award and he stands up and says, first thing out of his mouth, I just want to thank Jesus for this award. I don't get very excited about that. Because one, uh, I, I don't really appreciate Jesus getting tacked on to a lot of stuff that he gets tacked on to. You know, the National Strippers Convention, you know, that was held down in Las Vegas and some idiot got up and thanked Jesus that she had won because she, you know, had, uh, she had stripped for him. I don't get excited about that. That doesn't thrill my heart one iota because that's a bunch of, uh, of hogwash from Southern language. Wasted speech. Waste of oxygen, if you please. I don't even get excited when somebody's decent and, and honorable gets up and says, I just want to thank Jesus for this award, thank, thank him for all the things he did to help me get it. And so I don't really get excited about that. You know what I'd get excited about? I'd get excited about several things. 
I'd get excited if the President of the United States walked out to his regular press conference and he said, first thing I want to say today, I just want to let you know that way back when I trusted Jesus Christ as my Savior, realizing that he died on the cross for my sin, and I have placed my soul total faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work, and I stand before you today, not a perfect man, but a man who's been saved by the grace of God, and even though I make many mistakes, I'm on my way to heaven, and I'd love for the American people to go with me. Man, I'd thrill to that. I would thrill if some, quote, movie star, which, again, I tell you, I'm, I have no confidence in Hollywood. I have no confidence in the movie industry. I have no confidence in TV. Po I, that's just a waste of our energies and our time and the whole ten yards. So don't waste your time on it. They're going to proliferate our society with their propaganda. That's what they're out to. That's the devil's tool as far as I'm concerned. If one of them stood up and said, I tell you what. All you folks look at me tonight and I've gotten this award. I just want to stand here and tell you uh, that I trusted Jesus Christ as my Savior. He convicted me of my sin one night as I sat looking at some book and God spoke to my heart, convicted me of my sin. I realized I was a sinner and I trusted Him as my Savior. Now, I get excited about that, but you'll never hear it. You see, most cases, people use Jesus Christ as a ticket. He's just a ticket. You mention his name here and there, and you'll get people to say, Well, that's nice. He mentioned the Lord. Hey, give me a break. Mentioning the Lord is very low on the priority list. Living for him, speaking up in circumstances that give other people direction on how you came to where you are and what he's done in your life. Now, that'll make a difference. Let me suggest to you, when you uh, are at a meal with a group of people that you don't believe are saved people and you've not had the chance to pray for them or speak to them or witness to them, and they ask you to pray over the meal... We urge you to do something. I'd say to you, my friend, that here's a perfect opportunity if you say, Lord, I, I want to thank you for the food that's here before us and thank you for the opportunity to be with these men, these ladies, whoever these folks are with us. And Lord, I hope that the opportunity will become mine that I can share with these people how that Jesus Christ died for my sins and has changed me and made me to what I am so I can be to them what they need. Lord, help me be to them what they need. Help me to be a blessing and a help. And help them to come to trust you. Amen. Let me tell you something. It's time for God's people to be confrontive. It's time for God's people to get out of the cloakroom and come out on the platform. It's time for God's people to speak up and quit acting like we're a bunch of whiners. Time for God's people to quit acting like we have some God that's stuck in a box and can't get his leg out of the corner of it. It's time for God's people to speak up and say, Our God created this world, and we run around acting like the God of the devil owns all of it. He may be the God of this world. He may be the prince of the power of the air, but he didn't create the world, and he doesn't have all power. Our God's got it up on him all the way around. The devil may have a long chain, but he has a chain. And he can go so far, do so much, and that's all he gets to do. God can do whatever he chooses to do, but he has chosen to operate on the basis of the faith of His people. If you believe Him and you ask Him, He said, if you pray believing, I'll pull it off. If you don't ask it for your own pleasure, if you don't ask it for your own lust, if you don't ask it for your own benefit, if it's not going to somehow pad in your pocket, I'll take care of it. And I believe what He's saying in the long haul of this thing is, you lift me up. You lift me up. Just like when they crucified me and I drawed men myself and saved them. You lift me up in your daily life every chance you get. Be an outspoken Christian and be someone who stands out. Be different. 
And he says, if you'll do that, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll draw men to myself. You know why a lot of people, a lot of your friends, a lot of your family don't come to Jesus Christ? Because you don't lift him up. You're quieter than a church mouse on a Sunday service. You don't dare stick your head out of the wall. You, you just sort of keep it to yourself. I don't offend them. You think they care about offending you with their mommy cup? You think they care about offending you with their poor language? You think they care to talk to you about all the good things of the pagan world? You think that, that scares them? Who's worshiping who? Do you think they're more loyal to the devil than we are loyal to God? Isn't it time God's people speak up and say, Hey, I, I, it's not me, it's Him. Jesus Christ. He made the difference. He changed my life. And He's made the good in my life what it is good. The bad, that's my flesh. It won't submit. It won't cooperate. But the good of my life all goes to Him and to His credit. So it's not about you bragging. It's not about you boasting. It's not about you being cocky and arrogant. It's about you saying there's a God in heaven who cares that I speak up when I have an opportunity and let people know that God is not dead, though they may think so. That's what it is. Being different. Because I'm telling you, if we do not get comfortable being different in this pagan society, we're never going to make a difference. And there are going to be people who die and go to a devil's hell because we didn't make any difference. We just didn't make any difference. Let me close by telling you a few ways practically this week you can make a difference. One, be different. Just don't be weird. Don't be stupid. And don't be rude and crude. I've met some Christians who've done more harm to the cause of Christ than I can ever do good in my lifetime. Rude, crude, unkind, ugly, mean, and they hurt the cause of Christ. They hurt the cause of Christ. But I'm saying to you, you can be different and be different in a good way that people will notice and take notice that you have been with the Lord Jesus. You know Him. You've spent time with Him. And you understand how He thinks and you can communicate to them what they ought to know about Him. They will respect that. And they will appreciate that to some degree. And they might not do it at the moment. They might not even express it. But the time will come where they will. Secondly, distinguish yourself from the undisciplined world about you. Distinguish yourself. Be different. If you go in a place where you ought to have shine shoes, shine your shoes. If you go in a place where you wear a tie, Make sure it's straight. Make sure your collar's down. Make sure you look like you belong to the king, not to the homeless. Make sure that you reflect the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ as the best you can walking in flesh. Let them know you belong to the king and you're honored to be a representative and ambassador. Be everything that you ought to be. Distinguish yourself from the undisciplined people of the world. Thirdly, be distinctively Christ-like. Be distinctively Christ-like. That begins by having a working knowledge of God's Word. Reading it every single day. No exceptions, no excuses, and no exclusions. Reading it every day. Days you don't feel like it, read it. Days you feel like it, read it. Days you're so sick you can't hold your head up, quote the verses you memorized. Let it saturate your mind. Let it saturate your heart. Let it make you different. And then pray this prayer. Lord, make me like your son. Change me. Mold me. Make me into such an image that when people meet me, I will be an expressed testimony of who you are. And they all get a sense 
that they've come in touch with a Christian, a true Christian. Under that same ideal of being distinctively Christ-like, speak up, stand up for the truth of Jesus Christ. Wherever you are, in whatever context you find yourself, and somebody brings up something that is absolutely unscriptural, don't you sit there like a knot on a log. You don't have to be a scholar. All you have to be is somebody responsible enough to recognize that's not true. You don't have to have all the answer. You can just be honest enough, able enough to speak up and say, my friend, that's just not true. I don't have all the answers to what that's about, but I know that's not the truth. And if you do know the answer, give it. This thing I mentioned this morning is a common thing. Pagans quoting Scripture and having no clue what the context is that they quote. Matthew 7, 1 is a perfect illustration that I used this morning. Judge not that you be not judged. Pagans believe the ideal means you don't judge a single thing. And when we say something is wrong, they say, Hey, Matthew 7, 1 says, Judge not that you be not judged. They have no clue what the text is. Be sure you do. Have a working knowledge of the Bible to the point that when somebody quotes a verse of Scripture, you can right away say, Hey, you know what context that is? It's like when I was in Chattanooga, worked on the dock, and we'd have these winos come to the back of the dock and ask us for aquavella. And they didn't want to smell better. They wanted to drink it. And some of the guys on the dock who were pagan would go inside, take it off the shelf, write it up as a loss, bring it to them, and give those guys nine fluid ounces of aquavella so he'd see them drink it on the, par on the parking lot off the dock. And that guy would stand there and drink that for the alcohol that was in it. My soul. My soul. The whole point about this thing is, is that I would tell those men and they would just go nuts. I'd say, you don't need that. There's not enough alcohol in that to keep you from getting an infection in a cut finger, let alone to satisfy any interest in your body. He didn't care. He saw in it that it said alcohol. He'd been so programmed to that. You know what that guy would often tell me? That same wino that come to that lot, he'd quote the passage, a little wine is good for the stomach's sake. I'd say to him, you tell your doctor that when you get cancer of the stomach with all the rest of the junk that's in that bottle. You tell him that. And then I would, as a young preacher, tell him what that text really was talking about. There's a fourth thing. Not only be different, meaning not be weird or stupid or rude and crude and distinguish yourself from the undisciplined world and then be distinctively Christ-like, but also there is this fourth thing, be an example to all those people around you of what a real Christian ought to be. I mean by that, obviously speak kindly. Nobody in this room, nobody in the Christian community, nobody in the Christian community all over the world have any business raising their voices to other people. Husbands and wives don't have to yell at each other to communicate. Parents don't have to yell at their kids to get them to listen. You need to simply train them. If we can train dogs, we can train kids. And we don't have to yell at them, and we don't have to be abusive to them, and we don't have to call them names to get their attention. We can speak kindly and get the job done. Let your home be an example of a Christ-like home, the way you speak to one another. Let no corrupt communication come out of your mouth. Speak kindly, graciously, be polite, be helpful, and wherever you work, be diligent. Never let it be said of you 
I tell you, this guy who says he's a Christian, we carry his weight all the time. We cover his failures. We mop up his mistakes. And he still comes out and tries to tell us we're the ones that are not right with God. Figure that out. You see how the world measures it? They don't measure by, by saying, hey, this guy's a Christian. I understand that. Christ died for him. He repented of his sin and believed on Christ. They're looking at what does he do? What kind of life does he show for that? If Christ saved this guy, why didn't this guy work? They're paying him to work. They give him a check every Friday. If he's saved, then he ought to work. If he won't work, I don't believe he's saved. You see the world's reasoning? They don't reason from memory's concept of Scripture. They reason from logic. Logic said, if he's saved, he works. Because they should know that the Bible says, if a man will not work, neither should he eat. Neither should he eat. So if you have a job, don't shirk your responsibility. Don't you dare let anybody else cover your bases. And you make dead sure that any failures you make, by example now, you make sure they understand it's you who fail, not Christ in you who fail. You simply fail to do what He wanted you to do. If you get angry, you stop and tell them, that was, that was against God's will. I should not have done that. That dishonored my Lord. He never did that. He never got angry and sinned. He was angry and He sinned not. He admonished me to do the same thing. Be, be angry and sin not. But I got angry and I sinned. I, I'm, I'm sorry. I should not have done that. And by the way, the distance between when you sin and how long it takes you to confess it is pretty much a thermometer how spiritual you are. If you have to wait till everybody beats you up about it and then you finally conclude, I tell you what, I, I might as well go confess this uh, or if they're just going to keep beating me up about it, I guess I better go apologize. You might as well not apologize. You see, because it's not of the heart. It's not a conviction I've wronged someone. It's an attitude that my PR is not working my image has been scarred, and it's just looking bad. A few days ago, I'm, uh, I'm uh, you know, I'm, I think uh, Steve Irwin is, is pretty much a pagan, uh, the Australian guy who does the animal thing. But I love animals, and I love to see people work with them. Boy, when he took his child out there and hung that thing around with a feeding those alligators, if you didn't see the clip, personally, I didn't think anything about it because I've watched this guy do this before. Now, some mothers in this room uh, probably had hemorrhages and heart attacks. But... From a father's standpoint, I didn't really see anything big deal. You know, my dad's taken me out. I can recall carrying him, carrying some of my family members out to feed hogs that, you know, big Duroc hogs that weighed 400 pounds and had mouths open enough they could have swallowed the kid that fell into the, you know, the swine pig. I, I never thought anything about that. Just isn't a big deal. But the world made a big deal of this. And old Steve Irwin's PR people said, look, you better go out there and make a public announcement and a public apology and get this thing straightened up. You think Steve Irwin really was repentant of what he did? Not on your life. He never thought it was wrong in the first place and probably didn't think it was wrong in the end. And he did what he did because he's trying to sell videos and TV time on Animal Planet or wherever. You see, that's not what cuts it. It's a sensitivity to who God is and what God wants in my life and being Christ-like. And so I'm supposed to be an example. And when I cross the line and I am wrong, I need to speak up in a hurry. And he did make it a point. And one final thing, if we're going to make a difference, you need to be discerning. And that is to, you need to see, you need to behold, you need to notice, you need to be observant, be discovering of opportunities and openings to speak up for Christ in some fashion. 
you may not get the opportunity to witness to someone and make a clear presentation of the gospel every single day of your life. That may not work. But what you can do is everywhere you are, you can speak for Christ. You can say something. It may be nothing more than somebody's having a crisis in your office and you say to them, hey, I'm going to be praying for you this day. I know you're having a hard day. I understand that. Been there, done that. I feel for you. I'll be praying. I promise I'll pray for you. And you can. You think about, well, that won't matter. That's not a big deal. Yes, it is. It's a big deal. It shows compassion, concern, and interest in other people when you don't have to show it. I mean, after all, the world's in a hurry. And typically, they don't show any concern for anybody else. They'll run over you if you don't get out of the way. But for somebody to stop and pay attention to other people, this world is dying for want of somebody to slow down and say, what can I do to help you? How can I help you? What can I do for you? i tell you something. If you go to Walmart, I think we ought to have a ministry in the parking lot of Walmart. I cannot tell you the number of times that I take my dear wife in there to get something at Walmart. I will park out in the front and watch for her to return. And, uh, and by the way, we got walkie-talkies for Christmas, and now she just buzzes me, and I show up at the door. I feel a little bit like a taxi, but that's okay. There's ways to humble men. That's my humility. But anyway, here's the thing. I sit there, and I see people lose their vehicles. And they're out there running around and scratching. And I'm thinking to myself, I saw where the guy parked his car. I know exactly where that car is. The sinister side of my flesh says, go tell him for five bucks, you'll show him. <laughs> the Christian side of me says, go help this guy locate his car. And sometimes it's an elderly lady. And more than once, I've gotten out on a cold day in a warm van, reading a good book, and climb out of that van, go down that hall, that highway with no coat on, because I was going to sit in the van, and tell this dear lady, ma'am, I believe, is your car such a thing? Yes, yes, your car is two lanes over. See over there where that post is? Right. Oh, yes, I remember. And I'm saying, yeah, right, you remembered. I didn't get out of this cold car for nothing. You couldn't find that car. You didn't remember where you were. And a day, a few days ago, a young fella, a young man, you know, it doesn't happen just to older people. It's a young boy. He's walking up and down. Now he's getting mad. Throws his hands on his hips, and he's about ready to start, you know, he's about ready to spit fire. And I thought this would be fun just to tell him. And I got out to tell him. About the time I get out, walk 10 or 15, he sees it. And he walks over. Nice, red, souped-up vehicle. Now, let me tell you, he didn't, he wouldn't have lost that. But I thought, you know, it's everybody. Young people forget, older people forget, middle-aged people forget, I forget. What a blessing is to somebody just walk up to you, not make mock of it, but to walk up and say, look, I, I saw you park your vehicle and it's right over here. Can I help you over there? If they got a cart, can I help you cart that over there? Just being of help. You see, that'll make a difference in people's lives because most of the world is in such a hurry, they have no time for such an effort. I'm telling you, if we're going to make a difference, we're going to have to be different. We're going to have to work in a way that we've never worked before, be more conscious than we've ever been before of people and their need and of what Christ can do for them. This week, I challenge you to lift up the Lord Jesus Christ every opportunity you get, and in some cases, make opportunities. Settings right, the circumstances are good. Speak up for the Lord Jesus Christ. 
speak up. Say, boy, you've been a blessing in you know, services yesterday. God spoke to my heart about something in Sunday school, worship service Sunday evening, or, or I was at the fellowship at our church on Sunday night. We got to talking about something, and boy, the Lord just blessed me. And I just want to tell you how much, how grateful I am for how God's worked in my life. And I just want to express that to you, my friend. Speak up this week. This make a difference, if you would. Our Father in heaven, I ask you this evening to take what we've shared this evening in this service and even in the morning in the Sunday school, the worship service, and I ask you to help us make a difference. We can, and we should. In a sense, in a human sense, we're only hope that this world has. They need us. And it's that way because we needed somebody else to point us to you and to speak up when we were in their presence. And thank you that some did. Others did not. And it may well have been that we were delayed in our coming to you because of their silence, their witness. They were scared and somewhat intimidated by our lostness. And they held their speech, held their tongues. And we went on in our wicked ways. And it's possible we could have been lost as we went out into eternity, lost without you. But by your wonderful grace, you saw to us that did not happen. Help us not to miss an opportunity this week to speak up for you. There may be some macho kind of people around us. They may be the mouthiest people we've ever met in our entire life. But that may be exactly the kind of people that are covering a great void of emptiness inside their heart. It may be their way of signaling they need Christ. Help us to be bold. And help that boldness to come from the knowledge that we have personally of, of the difference that Jesus Christ can make in a life because we know what he's done in ours. Help us to speak up and stand up this week for the truth. And please use us. And we do what we do on this venture, this effort of making a difference. We do it by faith. We know that in ourselves we're not up to the match of the devil and his crowd we know, Father, that we can't answer every question they have to their satisfaction. But we know that your Spirit can give us boldness and give us your words. And even as you promised those early disciples, and they were convinced of it, that if they went out in faith and they spoke up, you'd give them the words at a given moment. And we don't believe there's any difference in that today. You could still do that for us. So help us this week to generate conversations, to ignite talk that might give us a platform from which to speak of your goodness and your grace and the great changes that you you bring about in men women boys and girls lives i'm asking you help us make a difference for you and for your glory in jesus name we pray amen with